Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty excited to be here. Um, I told the last service um, folks that were here that it was really dangerous of Johnny to ask a guy who hasn't been able to preach since January to come and preach and let all of it out on you all at one time. Um, so, but it's going to happen. Okay, say it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's exactly right. So thanks, Johnny. Thanks, elders, all pastors, all of you guys for allowing me the opportunity to preach. Um, have you guys, maybe, maybe you know some people around you um, uh, that are prone to exaggeration. Anybody? You know people, or maybe you've been guilty of it, so that we can all kind of raise our hands if exaggerated something. I've, I've never done that. And so um, typically this is kind of what it sounds like for me, and this actually happened this week. I experienced this. I'm riding uh, in the car with my wife, and um, I get in her van. We head to where we're going, and on the way back, guess what happens? The fuel light comes on. And then out of my mouth, before I even know it, the comment, every time I get in your van, it's on empty. Anybody with me? Anybody have spouses that are like that? It's like, do you not understand the perils that could befall you uh, if you run out of fuel on the wrong side of town, on the interstate? All sorts of things could happen if you run out of fuel, right? So tend, we tend sometimes to exaggerate things. We're prone to hyperbole. I know I know I, I've never done that, and so, um, so, but, but some of you may have, and so I don't want to you know, throw any shade on you guys or anything, but you know, in our passage this morning, um, it's going to be easy for us as we read through it to get to the part where Peter says, in everything, and think, surely you don't mean everything, right? Surely you're exaggerating, but I want to submit to you this morning, Peter's not exaggerating. And so as you are hearing Uh, the sermon this morning, as you are allowing the word to dwell within you richly, as scripture says, I want you to kind of push that thought aside that that maybe Peter is exaggerating. Um, So open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 through 11. And as you're turning there, I think it's important for us to really understand. So I want to kind of set the scaffold, set the the setting of what's happening right now of, of, of the church, the people that Peter is speaking to. See, An emperor named Nero um, was reigning at the time, and Nero had an an incredible lust to build, to to expand everything that he had. And so Rome was kind of almost landlocked at this point. And so in order to build anything, he would have to tear some stuff down. And so clearly, people would see him tearing things down and be like, "Uh, what are you doing, Nero? So he set fire. Tradition believes that he set fire to a part of Rome, thinking that he could kind of burn a little section, a little area, we'll make the fire stop here. Uh, didn't, didn't work out that way. Uh, most of Rome went up in flames, and with it went the uh, religious culture. Uh, much of the culture of Rome went up in flames with it. And so uh, Nero, now knowing what he had done, and now people beginning to point the finger at Nero, saying, what are you, what will you think, what are you doing? What happened, how, who, all this sorts of stuff he realizes deep down. In order to escape this, I'm going to have to put the blame on someone else. And so 
guess who was easy as a scapegoat? It was Christians. And so he said, don't look to me, look to the Christians. They're the ones that did this. And so imagine a, a huge society of people being so frustrated and angry with, with the Christians. Intense persecution ensued. And so you can even look over to chapter 1. Peter calls his audience the elect exiles of the dispersion. So when the persecution hit, many of the Christians left. Uh, I don't know about you, but I probably would have been one of those that did that as well, trying to escape this kind of persecution, this undue uh, pressure that was placed on me or you in that time. And so they went to areas like, as he says, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all sorts of places. And so Peter's writing to actually encourage those believers to live in a certain way. And so if you have gotten to First uh, Peter chapter 4, um, say word. Come on, we're going to have to have some little back and forth here. I'm going to need your participation this morning. Shake the cobwebs out, right? When you get there, say word. word. Hey, we're together now. Starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, say it with me, in everything, let's try that again, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is encouraging these persecuted believers that in everything they are to be about the business of glorifying God. Now it's important for us as we look at Scripture, for us when we approach Scripture, to, to look at it and understand that not everything in the Bible was written directly to us, North American believers. However, everything in the Bible was written for us. And so we can then, therefore, look at this and say, not only is he encouraging the persecuted believers there, but us also so that we could be about the business of glorifying God. And so to provide a little clarity, Peter wanted to make uh, that specific to their situation, so he challenged them with three commands or three statements that we will kind of walk through this morning. And so... Those statements, those commands, they apply to you and I today as well. And so let's, let's jump into that first command that you see. Exercise control. Exercise control. Peter starts with a staggering reminder to his audience and here to us today that the end of all things is at hand. This isn't foreign to the believers. This isn't foreign to Christians. It shouldn't be foreign to us that we are to expect the return of our Savior, King Jesus. Right? Everybody with me? Yes, that, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be ready. Now, the, the disciples, after they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, when they heard him say he's coming back, they were like looking up like, okay, I think he's coming in about five minutes, guys. That eager anticipation for Christ to return, to establish his kingdom, for us to reign with him forever, that's, to, that's supposed to be something that bursts within us a desire to live according to what Christ has called us to live. 
So the end of all things is at hand. Now, this creates within us a sense of imminence. Of This is about to happen right now. Now, it's been a little over 2,000 years, so it would be a little easy for us to kind of get comfortable and complacent in our nice, cushy, comfortable lives and not think a second thought about what God wants from us because it doesn't seem like he's urgent for me to do things, except that when I read scripture, it clearly looks that way. So write this down. Eminence should create within us urgency. Eminence should create within us urgency. Urgency to be about the business that God's put us at. Therefore, because the end is at hand, all the more reason to be, look down at it, self-controlled, verse 7, and sober-minded. The idea of the word self-controlled there is to use good sense. You ever have to tell your kids, use some common sense, for goodness sake. Anybody? It's okay to admit that your kids aren't all that, right? So... We could get beyond that thought, because I'll tell you, mine aren't. Neither was I as a kid. As a matter of fact, my dad, uh, at one point, would use this phrase. Son, use your head for something besides a hat rack. I'm like, all right, Dad, can you explain that? Uh, (laughs) No, use good sense. God gave you common sense. Don't do those things that are ignorant. Be self-controlled. But also to be sober-minded. The opposite of sober is to be intoxicated. We know that, right? So when we look at that word, it's like, okay, sober-minded, that makes sense. But to be spiritually observant. To be so filled with the Spirit that we're noticing things through a spiritual framework. Not necessarily just things that my eyes see that are physical. So to kind of sum it up, what Peter is saying, he's saying use good sense and be spiritually observant. Exercise control. And then he's, he, he kind of throws a curveball at us in some ways, or at least it hits us kind of strange, for the sake of your prayers. So he's tying being self-controlled and sober-minded with our prayers. Now, is he saying that if, if we're not self-controlled and sober-minded, that our prayers won't be heard, they won't be answered? No, I don't believe that that's it at all. I think that rightly understood, it is be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. You ever had a anxieties that kind of prevented you from going to the Lord about something? You ever, you ever been frustrated with the reality that you experienced that you feel like God has no idea that you're walking through, and so therefore you're like, well, I, what's the point? Anybody? Yeah, I think we've all been there. So that you can pray, this exercising control. One, one commentator said, proper prayer is not an opiate or escape but rather a function of clear vision and a seeking of even clearer vision from God. It's a clarity. Prayer, I don't know if you realize this, but when you get deep into and get serious about the act of praying in your life, it really changes you more than it changes God. Because don't we do that? We come to the Lord and like, I'm going to pray and see if I can get God to do what I want to do. Yeah, how's that working? doesn't. Prayer's meant to change us, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. But why would Paul have to remind the believers here, and even us for that matter, that to be self-controlled and sober-minded? 
Why, why would he say that? Look back at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 4. This is, it, it almost cracks me up in a sense, but it really is kind of mind-boggling. Starting in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, did he miss anything? Say it. No. No, he didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, with respect to this, they are surprised. The Gentiles are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Hello. Which camp is he trying to paint them into? I think it's pretty clear. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He wasn't beating around the bush. Because Christ's return is imminent, Peter's desire is that we would be found bringing God glory in our obedience. Now, I want you to think back on a time when you were young. Maybe you were a preteen, maybe you were a teenager, maybe... Uh, Maybe you just received them now, but anybody in here had, have chores growing up? And uh, keep your hands up if you really enjoyed that kind of thing. We had somebody up front in the early service. They were like, yes, love chores. Um, I think she's maybe starting a business. We can get you connected to her. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's not kind of my favorite thing. When I wake up in the morning, I don't think, you know, clean the bathrooms. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Right, and, I, and I'm just guessing that most of you aren't like that either. And so the, here are two scenarios I want you to think about. Your parents are at work, and they say this. Help me finish the statement. These chores better be done by the time. Come on, you guys. I mean, that's like a C plus. Okay? Okay. Parents leave. They're already home. They leave to go somewhere, and they say, these better be done by the time I get back. Now, am I the only one here that saw that as an opportunity to party? <laughs> By your laughter, I'm, I'm just believing that there are other people in here that were like that. So there was this one time when uh, my dad was already home, and he gave me this list of things to do, and it already seemed impossible. I was like, there's no way that's getting done, right? Uh, although you told me to do that, yes, I'm supposed to obey. I get, it. I get scripture. I understand that. Um, and so dad walked out the garage door as he normally does. He got in his truck, heard the truck door slam. Notice all the details I'm recalling, right? Because it's the process of leaving that you hear and like, okay, he's gone, right? So there's the vehicle cranking up, backing out of the garage, peeking through, seeing that the garage door is coming down, running to the front door. All right, is he going down the street? Yes, he is. Let's do this, Right? So turn the TV on, get the music going, go outside, playing outside. Am I doing what my dad asked me to do? Yes or no? No. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I'm doing everything he didn't tell me to do, right? So what I didn't know is that my dad saw me peeking. Yeah. You've been there too, huh? And so what happened was he went out at the front of the neighborhood where I couldn't see him while I was outside playing and doing all this other gallivanting around in the house. And he waited about 10 minutes and came back, and there was a ring at the doorbell. And I'm like, oh, great, somebody's delivering a package. You know, I mean, who doesn't like to receive mail, right? It's like, Amazon, oh, what could it be? I've ordered so many things. Sorry, that was completely a side note. Um, and so I go to the door, and guess how surprised I was? Was, was I ready for him to be back? No, you knew my plan. Party 
until the last 10 minutes and then scuttle around the house and try to get everything done. I was not found being faithful with what my God, what my dad told me to do. And so here's the reality. Because of the imminence of Christ's return, Christ is expecting us to live in a certain way. And one of those things is to exercise control by being self-controlled, being sober-minded in the way in which we're living, not like the Gentiles did in their flood of debauchery, but to be about the business of glorifying God. Are you obedient in everything? Now, I don't want you to answer out loud. Peter is trying to prepare God's people for the return of Christ. His goal is to encourage the exiles, these believers that are experiencing intense persecution, to be found obedient when Christ does return. And so in everything, you are to be about the business of glorifying God. So exercise control for his glory. Peter moves from control to one of the most crucial statements in the Bible for us as believers. You want to give God glory? Here's how. Love one another. Exercise control. Love one another. He almost takes this into a superlative view. Above all, I told you to exercise control, self-control, sober-minded, these other things that you're going to hear after I say, above all, set up at the top the crucible is to love one another. Even more exaggeration, it seems like, here. Or at least we would think. He says, look down at it, he says, keep loving one another. As if this is a continual thing that you should be doing no matter what. It reminds me of John 13, 35. You want to jot that down for a later reference. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is Jesus speaking. How is that, Jesus? If you have love for one another. Let's pause just for a second. It would be really easy for you to sit there in your seat and for me to stand here right now and say, yeah, 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 I get it. Love, love, it's all about love. Love is all you need. Come on, finish it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Love is all you need. Okay, some people who are like early 50s, 60s, you know, area. Oh, my goodness. It's all about love. It's all about love. Think about the context of what is happening to the people that Peter is talking to. They are being squeezed from the outside in this intense persecution. Could you imagine hearing what Peter would be hearing? I just had stones thrown at me today, Peter, and you expect me to love? Are you kidding me? I just was beaten today because I'm marked as a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to tell me to love? Love is not what I feel right now, Peter. Love is not what I really want to do. It's not at the top of my list right now. Imagine that. But yet, Peter, insistent that we love one another. If you're being persecuted wrongfully, whatever, for many reasons, how would you respond to that persecution? Here are a couple of potential responses Uh, that you might experience, you might have gone through, you might have done. Um, Number one is withdrawal. This is the person who struggles with conflict. Fight or flight, I'm gone. I'm flying. I'm fleeing from the conflict. Don't like it at all. It's not my favorite. Not going to do it. Right? Usually it's the people that they're doing this. Right? They ball up. 
Another potential response for you might be paranoia. This person sees conflict everywhere, even if it isn't real conflict. And they're constantly anxious. What about, number three, retaliation? This is the person that's just, man, I'm waiting for somebody to get up in my grill one more time. I'm going to bust them. Right? They're not, they're not running from the conflict. They're actually looking for it and wanting to run into it in an unholy type of way. But there's another option, another potential response, maybe the one that Peter is pushing us toward, and that is, number four, love. It's counterintuitive. It's, I feel like I'm going to be feeling like I'm always run over. I'm going to be taken advantage of. People are going to abuse me. Let me ask you a question. What happened to Christ? Was he abused? He took ridicule for your behalf. For my behalf. All the sin of the world was laid on him. Love is not natural in these conditions. It needs to be practiced. And you say, well, how do I love? How do I practice this love? Look, look at the word that Peter uses. It's kind of interesting. It says, uh, above all, keep loving one another. Say it earnestly. Now, what does that mean to love someone earnestly? Like Anybody know, um, uh, participate in track? Track and field, maybe you ran. Any of you run from something before? Anybody in here? <laughs> run from something? Run into something? Tripped over something? Anybody in here seen anybody? Olympics? <laughs> this is how you participate, right here. There we go. Thank you. Right there in the middle. So, all right. So this idea is as you've seen someone in the Olympics or Usain Bolt or anyone stretching toward for the finish line, it's the idea that every single muscle is con- is, is contracted in a way in which to stretch out, to strive for, to reach out, to get that one thing. So loving is not natural. We know that. Right? No one does it naturally. And even the ones we feel like they do, we, we kind of feel like something's wrong with them. Right? So we have to practice. We have to exercise. We have to stretch. It's a stretching out. It's a... a Forsaking everything else that is around you that you could be doing and focusing on loving those around you. It's the idea of exerting as much energy as you can to get across that finish line to love one another. Why? Peter says because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, whoa, whoa, be careful now. Hold on. Are you telling me that if I love somebody that my sins will be atoned for? No. I'm not saying that. Nor will you loving them atone their sins. Who alone saves? Say it. Jesus. God through Christ saves. So it's not our love that saves anyone. However, it is the demeanor and the disposition that we exercise that allows others when they are loved by us to overlook our offenses. It's a reference to Proverbs 10, 12. Where the author says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Peter moves to another aspect of loving one another by saying, show hospitality. Anybody in here enjoy when others show hospitality? Oh, come on now. You invite me over to the house, you feed me some steak? Booyah. I'm there. Okay? I had something going on, but I'm rearranging that, moving that to another day. I'm with you. (laughs) Right? We enjoy that. But do we enjoy showing hospitality to others? Oh, seems like I struck a nerve even within my own heart. But he says to do it 
Look down at the Bible, because that's where all this is coming from. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. The, the, the idea of grumbling is kind of the behind-the-scenes talk. It's the grumbling under your breath. It's the, you know, somebody's at your home, you're showing hospitality, they ask for another pancake, and you're like, give you another freaking pancake, right? I mean, it's the, it's the idea of, like, it shows the motivation of your heart. It's like, I'm really not, I'm in this, but I'm not in this. I, I want to help, but I'm like, this costs me a lot. I don't like how this makes me feel. You know, back in those days, to show hospitality uh, was often over, uh, overused and abused. Uh, if you were a believer traveling to another area, you, you naturally wouldn't go down to the Motel 8 where you know persecution is going to happen you're going to get kicked out anyway, right? We're not about that life. So we find other believers in the area where we're going and ask to stay. So they basically they came up with this system of where they would give you a maximum of about three days, by which time you would need to either have meaningful employment and a source of revenue and be about your business on your own, or you would be leaving to go to another town. Now you could see where this would be abused, right? So in order to do that, to prevent that, that's why they set those things in place. Now, have you ever offered your house to someone? Have you ever said, let me ask you, have you ever said this? Um, hey, if you ever need a place to stay, we've got an extra bedroom. And then immediately we're like, gosh, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> Shoot, they're going to take us up on it, John. They're going to do it, right? Show hospitality. There's a dialogue that you could probably be seeing happening in those times where, 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 where Lucy and Johnny were opening their home. Last week they had somebody that overstayed their, their three days by two days. And you're like, okay, so we're supposed to overlook that offense, huh? We're supposed to love him. We're supposed to show hospitality. And Johnny's like, yeah, we got somebody, uh, honey, coming tonight. What? I just now got the bed sheets changed. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, um, honey, and... Uh, Dorcas is coming next week. And, and, and the wife is just like, okay, I'm done with this. You, you can go open your own house somewhere else and have people come in, but they ain't coming into my house. Right? This mentality, this show hospitality, it's a, it's a go the extra mile kind of viewpoint of showing one another this love. When we talk about loving one another and showing hospitality, uh, I, I found a quote that John Calvin wrote in uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's so great. He says, Those who hate are incessantly biting, carping at, upbraiding, lacerating each other, making everything a fault. You know anybody like that? But those who love mutually conceal each other's faults. They wink at many. They forgive many. Not that the one approves the vices of the other, but tolerates and cures by admonishing rather than exasperating by assailing. Listen, write this down. Whatever measure of grace has been extended to you, extend that same measure of grace to others. Whatever measure of grace has been extended to you, extend that same measure of grace to others. I know what the measure of grace that God gave to me. He not only covered by overlooking, he covered by atoning every offense. So how are you at showing love? Well, I came up with a, a, a short list of things that, that may fit everyone into one of these four categories. I'm least likely to show love when, because this shows the attitude and the motivation of our hearts as well. I'm least likely to show love when it's hard. When that person has just been way too much for me to handle. 
Or my situation is X and extra is being required and asked of me by the Lord. I can tell he's pulling me in that direction, but I just can't do it. It's too hard for me. Or I'm least likely to show love when the person is difficult to love. Anybody have anybody like that in your life? Yeah, you've already got names. You've got pictures. You've got, you got like an X across them, like a void, like the plague uh, in your mind over them. Peter's telling us to love them. I'm least likely to show love when, number three, it's not reciprocated. I expect when I do something for someone to do that back to me. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why is this not being reciprocated? Why am I not receiving this back? Also, I'm least likely to show love when I have been offended. You cross people off your list when they do the slightest thing wrong to you. Peter is telling us, doesn't matter, love one another. Overlook the offense. You are believers who have been changed by the same grace from Jesus Christ, from God the Father. Now love one another with that same kind of love. In everything, you are to be about the business of glorifying God. So love one another to his glory. And one of the reasons is because you're going to need love in your toolbox so you can actually execute this third command, which is to serve one another. Did you know that each one of you are gifted? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the type of gifted where you got pulled out of class in school because your IQ was so high, you got to play with these fun puzzles and hang out with other people that were really smart. Maybe I'm a little bitter. I'm talking about spiritually gifted. Look back at verse 10. It says, as each has received a gift. Is that confusing to anyone? As each, every one, all of you Scripture being applied to you right now, you have a gift from God if you've repented of your sin and trusted Christ as Savior. Because maybe there are some people here this morning, you have no idea what that means. What does it mean that I have a spiritual gift? Well, hopefully, we'll kind of help clear that up for you this morning. A spiritual gift is any divinely given ability that edifies the church. Maybe you've wondered, man, when I do this, I not only feel fulfilled like this makes me feel good, but I feel like I was created for this purpose. You ever, you ever done that? You ever engaged in that? It's one of, one of the reasons why God, one of the ways God called me to be a senior pastor. I preached one time, and I was, it was more than just, man, this feels good. I could do this. It was a, man, I feel like I was made for this. When you, when you trusted Christ as Savior... God sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. You are the temple. You are the tabernacle. You are the place where God's, God dwells. With the Holy Spirit came a divinely given ability. It's unique to each believer. And its purpose is meant to be used inside the context of a local church to serve one another for the glory of God's kingdom and the fame of his name. Now... Notice how Peter puts this. Look down at what he says next. He says, serve one another. But he says it in a unique way. He says, as good stewards. Now, where else have you heard that idea of being a good steward? Right? Finances. To steward your finances. Uh, to, to steward your finances isn't to, as 
the, the parable that Jesus says to go hide it and dig a ditch and put it in it and cover it up. That's not stewarding anything. That's waiting. That's guarding. To steward something is to use something for an intended purpose. Write this down. Administer your spiritual gift as a steward. Don't parade it like a performer. There are some, as, as even Paul was instructing the Corinthians, um, desire the greater gift of love. I would more prefer that you prophesy than speak in tongues. He was, people were elevating certain gifts over the others, and it wasn't that at all. It was a each of us not only knowing what our gift is, but actually utilizing that in the context for which God gave it to us to expand his kingdom to the glory of God. The, Think about this. God is tying here. He's tying the use of your spiritual gift to the dispensing of his grace. Notice, notice what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As we use our gifts that God has given us in the context of the local church, grace is dispensed to one another. Peter gives uh, two specific categories. Paul gives more specifics in the Corinthians. You can see these uh, lists of gifts, but he basically breaks them down to two. He says, if speaking, speaking the oracles of God. Now that sounds like, man, that's not, I could never, ever speak an oracle, right? You've seen some movies where an oracle is like a weird, like demented creature. Anybody with me? It's like, I, away with that, um, give me the good guy. Right? That's not what it means. An oracle there, it's, it's, a, it's a word that's reflected in like words. So to have the speaking gift is you essentially saying, thus says the Lord. It's reflecting what God has already given us in his scripture, which is sufficient for all time for all people. If speaking, then this is your gift, to speak this, teach this. If serving, by the strength that God gives... Because the reality is this, I can't serve out of my own strength. You know why? My own strength gets me in trouble. Because guess why? I'm selfish, right? So I have to rely on the strength of God in order to do this correctly. Now, too many people in the church today don't know their spiritual gift and therefore are not serving one another well. The first step to serving one another well, as Peter's describing here, is to know your spiritual gift. Now, you probably, if you're like me, you've heard a lot of things about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you're like, okay, I'm afraid of that because I don't understand that. It's less of that and more of clarity, understanding what God's gifted you to do. One of the ways that you can identify your spiritual gift is to... Uh, go to a website uh, called www. If you want to write this down, spiritualgiftstest.com. The reason I'm giving you that is so that you could kind of figure out just questions that you answer. It's not finding out if you can speak another unknown language. It's uh, it's literally a yes, I do this. No, I don't do that. One to five. I'm a five here. I'm a one here. I'm actually a zero, but they don't allow me to do a zero, so I'm a one here. Um, so it's identifying what has God gifted you to do because. In everything, you are to be about the business of glorifying God. So serve one another to his glory. 
Now, some of you are thinking, aren't we in 7 through 11? Joel, why did you end there? And the the reality is I'm not ending there. I'm going to take you back to the text really quickly so you can see this as we close this down. By the strength that God supplies, in order that. Say it with me. In everything. Say it again. In everything. Peter is not exaggerating here when he says in everything. But how in everything am I to bring God glory? Because I know in my flesh I struggle. Anybody with me? Anybody struggle on the struggle bus this morning? I am. I am unable to do even these three things, exercising control, loving one another, serving one another. I'm unable to do those well. So if I have to do those, if I'm using this as a checklist, if those are the things that I have to do in order to bring God glory, I don't even do those well. So where's the hope? The hope is this, Christ. Don't forget what he says in everything that God may be glorified in Christ Jesus. Look at this, the reality. Christ saved you. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in you. Christ has declared you holy and righteous. Inasmuch as Christ is righteous, you are righteous. So Christ has declared you to be this. In exercising control, loving one another, serving one another, doing everything that you can to grow in Christ, you are becoming in reality what God has already declared you to be in Christ. If that's what this is about, I can do that because Christ has already covered my failures at the cross. So it's not a checklist of yes, yes, no, therefore I'm not doing it. It is that you are to pursue these things. You are to exercise control. You are to love one another. You are to serve one another. Because you're being conformed into the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In everything. In everything. You're to be about the business of glorifying God. Peter is not exaggerating everything. He literally means everything. And to the extent at which Christ himself glorifies God, if you are a believer in this room right now, that is you as well. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.